Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Todd Wright. I'm one of the pastors here, and I get to preach for you today. Uh, Senior Pastor Ross Strader is actually in Turkey, and so I get the, uh, the privilege of substituting for him today. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. We're going to be in Romans 5, verse 1 through 11. So we are in a series called The Righteousness of God. It's a study through the book of Romans. We've been there for quite a while. Some of you have been here for most of the series, but if you haven't, I can give you a little background. Ross has talked about this a little bit, but let me remind you that Romans starts pretty heavy. It starts pretty intense. Romans 1 and 2 and most of 3 all start developing this idea. They're all talking about this basic premise. God is righteous, you are not. And it's pretty heavy. There's a lot of talk about wrath. There's a lot of talk about your inability to be righteous. And if you were being real honest, you might even read that and go, man, this feels a little hopeless. But as Ross has said, and certainly true today, then when you get to Romans 4 and Romans 5, it begins to make this turn. That Romans begins to turn and starts getting really good because it starts answering this problem that it's set up. It starts to diagnose what happens and how we can become righteous, how we can be made righteous. And so we're going to read it this morning. I'm going to read it all the way through, and then we'll break it down into some individual sections. Romans 5, verse 1 through 11. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This passage is not only good news, it is good news, and that's great, but there's an extra something about this that I believe that Romans 5 is about to start telling us some of the benefits of the gospel. That when we believe in Jesus, this is where the rubber meets the road. This is how the gospel plays out in your everyday life. So let's look at verse 1 and 2. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. The benefit I think that's clear here is that the gospel changes your spiritual position. So, newsflash, Romans 5 follows Romans 4, okay? And so, if you were here the past couple weeks, you already know this. But let me just give you a brief refresher. So, Romans 4 is all about Abraham. And it's explaining to us that Abraham hears from God. That in the Old Testament, God comes to Abraham. He says, I have this plan. I have this thing I want to do. I want to use you, and I want you to follow me. 
And that Abraham puts his faith in God. And Romans 4 says that Abraham's faith is counted to him as righteousness. Now listen, Abraham's just a guy, okay? He's not a deity. He's not an angel. His unrighteousness is just like your unrighteousness. He can't earn his way into salvation either. But Romans 4 says when he puts his faith in God's plan, it's counted to him as righteousness. And then at the very end of Romans 4, starting in verse 23, it says, But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So the end of Romans goes, hey, this isn't just for Abraham. This is for you too. And then immediately Romans 5, 1 and 2 explain this thing. And you'll see this phrase in Romans 5, 1 and 2 that they say we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is how it works. Romans 5, 1 and 2 tells you that when you place your faith in God's plan, just like Abraham placed his faith in God's plan. To you and to me, God says, Jesus is my plan. Jesus is the way you can be made righteous. When you place your faith in Jesus, your faith is counted unto you as righteousness. Make no mistake, you're not righteous, okay? I hate to be the bearer of bad news, you're not, okay? And I'm not either. But Romans 5, 1 and 2 tells us that we put our faith in Jesus. It's counted to us as righteousness. And then it says that we are justified. Justified, most of us know, is a legal term. So if you were to look up justified, you would see all these definitions of like, you know, innocent or within your rights to do something or in the, in the right and good. And if you went to trial, if you were on trial for something, and at the end of the trial, it was decided that you were justified in doing what you did, that means you're straight, you're good, you're right. Justified is this legal term. And so Romans 5, 1 and 2 tells you that your faith in Jesus, his work justifies you. You don't do a bunch of stuff to get righteous. You don't do all this stuff and suddenly you just become a more righteous person. No, you get the righteousness of Jesus. It's applied to you. Here's an example. This isn't a perfect metaphor, but I think it'll make sense. In our house, we use Venmo, okay? It's this app you can send and receive money. Okay, we use Venmo. Anybody else use Venmo? Okay, awesome. Got some Venmo fans, great. So we use Venmo. So here's what happens. There'll be, you know, one night I'm sitting in the living room and I get this text from our son Jonah. He's 17 and it's like, Dad, I'm out with the boys. I'm at Whataburger. I don't have any money. Could you give me money to eat on? And so then back at the house, I look at Kristen and I go, can we give John, you want to give Jonah some money? And she goes, sure, give him some money. And then I go, eh, five bucks. He can probably eat him five bucks. And so I open my Venmo app and I type in five bucks and I, and I send him the five bucks because I'm a good, good father. And I hit the button and all of a sudden, Jonah has five bucks. So he's standing in the lobby of Whataburger and all of a sudden, he's got five dollars that he did not have before he asked me. He didn't have that. Here's some other things about that. Jonah doesn't look at his friends and go, hey, can y'all hang on? I'm going to go dig in my car for change and maybe I have enough to eat. Jonah doesn't go, hey, I'll see y'all. I'm going to go mow yards for a couple weeks and maybe I'll have money and maybe we can meet back up and then maybe I can eat with y'all. No. As soon as Jonah asks, my bank account talks to his bank account and says, we got it. The other thing 
is that Jonah does have to place his faith that dad's going to do it. So I could say no. I'm really not that great of a father. Sometimes I say no. But Romans 5, 1 and 2 just said that if you will place your faith in Jesus, that righteousness will be applied to your account. I know it's not a perfect metaphor, but I want you to understand. Just like Jonah doesn't have to go mow a yard, you don't have to do a bunch of stuff. You just got to know who to place your faith and trust in. The gospel changes your spiritual position. If you're here and God's here, you don't walk up a bunch of steps. You don't do a bunch of stuff that suddenly, oh, now I'm beside God. Now I'm at his level. No way. It's you owning up to your unrighteousness and saying, I need Jesus. And suddenly the righteousness of Jesus is applied to you. And you are in relationship to God. The gospel changes your spiritual position. Look at verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Another benefit of the gospel, the gospel sees you through hard times. There's this formula here in the scripture, right? This little list he gives us that suffering produces endurance. Endurance makes character. Character produces hope. Hope will not put us to shame. And I'm sure I have heard this before, but I will tell you the past couple weeks as I've been studying, this was news to me. Maybe I heard it years ago and I've kind of forgot. But that word character, there's a lot that hinges on that word. Because if you were to go home and research it this afternoon, you would find that most Bible experts, when they go into the, to the old language, into the original text of the Bible, they would translate this word character to something kind of like the word veteran. Some of you have had this happen. Some of you grew up in families where if you were complaining or you were having a hard time, you'd have a grandpa or a dad. Usually it's the guys who say this to the kids. Oh, Bill's character. Bill's character. You know, you'd complain, it's so hot out here. Bill's character. Well, that grandpa or that uncle or that dad or mom or aunt or whoever, those people saying that to you, they weren't saying, oh, don't worry, working in the heat makes you an upright, you know, have a lot of integrity, a real moral person. No, what do they mean? It means it toughens you up. That you learn from this experience. And Romans 5, 3, 3 through 5, that when you endure in suffering, there is something that happens to you as a follower of Jesus that you become a veteran. And that you are constantly looking back at where you've been. So if, if you know a veteran, you know that sometimes you can get them talking about what they've seen. And it's amazing sometimes how even a veteran who hasn't seen combat in a long, 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 long time can remember some of the most intricate details of what they saw and what they experienced. And Romans 5, 3 through 5 is telling you that when you endure in suffering through the gospel, you become a veteran because you will look back and see time and time and time again God's faithfulness that leads you to hope because you will look back and see how God has been faithful. Now listen, sometimes that's miracle. Sometimes you look back on your life and you go, man, I didn't know how we were going to get out of that. Man, that person was sick or we didn't have any money. And there are times where God's done an absolute miracle for you. And you look back as a veteran and you go, that's amazing. I can't believe he did that. He just miraculously changed everything. But there are a lot of times you don't get a miracle. There are a lot of times you come through suffering and you didn't get the miracle that you wanted. 
But if you talk to someone who's a veteran of following Jesus, and if you're a veteran of following Jesus, there are things you can look back on your life that you did not get the miracle. You did not get the answer you wanted. God did not fix it, and you don't know why. But you can look back and you can say, you know what? God gave us so much strength in that. God was faithful. God taught me so much. One day when I get to heaven, I'll ask him why we didn't get the miracle. But as I look back, I can just see time and time and time again, he's been faithful. I don't know why Romans 5, 3 through 5 isn't one of the main verses we talk about when we talk to someone who doesn't know Jesus. This verse is so filled with hope. If you aren't a Christ follower, here's God's word telling you that if you will place your faith in him, that the gospel will make you a veteran and it will lead you to hope. If you are a Christian, my prayer is that you hold on to this like a life preserver. You might be in the middle of suffering right now and that you would remember. God's word is full of the word remember. It's one of the most important words when we come to worship. When you come in here on Sunday or you go to life group or you go to Sunday school, or you go to Bible study, and there are times where you're just not feeling it. It's like, I'm not feeling very close to God. Do you know the power that's in the word remember? I'll give you an example. Some of you will remember years ago, there was this very popular thing that happened in churches. And it was, uh, it was, it was called cardboard testimonies, okay? And so these cardboard stories, and what would happen is a lot of times you'd see it on Facebook or YouTube and It'd be a church stage and all these people would stand up and they would have these pieces of cardboard. You know, the music's playing. And it would have all this stuff on the front that was either a, a testimony or a confession or something. But, but it would always be not the best thing. So somebody would be standing there, they'd say, you know, drug addict for two years. You know, marriage was on the brink of collapse. Diagnosed with this illness. And they would, they would all hold these up. And then, as the music played, one by one they'd begin to turn them over. And the other side would say, Clean and sober, 20 years. Marriage stronger than ever, 11 years going strong. Healed of this disease. And the reason why you watch those and why I watch those and my eyes get all watery is because that's what remembering is. That's what a testimony is. And when you follow, if you are a follower of Jesus, when you end your days on this earth, you will have a stack of cardboard stories. In your mind, they will just be piled up, story after story after story. Some of them, oh, that was a miracle. Others, that wasn't a miracle. That was awful, but God was faithful. So the, God, the, the gospel changes your spiritual position, but the gospel also sees you through hard times. This is such a benefit. If you don't know Jesus, I pray that you would give your life to him because following him will radically change how you endure suffering. It says there at the end of the verse that hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Let me just say this. If you haven't heard it today, God loves you and God will not put you to shame. Let's keep going. Verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Here's the benefit, I think, evident right here. The gospel knows exactly who you are. Now, that may not seem like good news, but let me tell you something. There is no room for ego in the gospel. 
The gospel knows exactly who you are. Jesus knows exactly who he's dealing with. And he has all these statements about you and about me. He says that you're weak. Christ died for the ungodly. And then at the end, he says that his love for us in that while we were still sinners, the Bible's calling you a sinner. You want to know why? Because you are one. And I'm one. And the gospel knows this to be the truth. I will tell you from my experience, this verse just resonates with me because I'm weak. I can't earn my own righteousness. I cannot earn my way into God's favor. I've got nothing. I've got nothing to give God. And in my weakness, if I don't place my faith in him, then I'm not walking with him. And so I'm living an ungodly lifestyle. And when I'm living an ungodly lifestyle or you're living ungodly, then we sin. Because we try to fill that void. We try to find all of these things to give us hope and give us purpose and give us peace. And any of that stuff that, that's, not, that's not God, we're sinning. We're giving our attention and our devotion and our adoration to all these things that are not God. The gospel knows exactly who you are. That you are weak. You are unable to save yourself. All that you have, every good thing about the gospel is because of Jesus, God's plan. Verse 7 focuses on this. It says, hey, dying for somebody's a big deal in, in real life, not just in Bible talk. In real life, it's a big deal to die for somebody. I'm not good enough or strong enough to merit Christ dying for me, and neither are you. The gospel knows exactly who you are. Verse 8 even says that he died for us while we were sinners. Christ died for you when you were at odds with him. He died for sinners, not saved people. And in just a second, the word's even going to say that we were enemies of God. There's no room for ego here. You can't have ego. The gospel knows exactly who you are. It changes your spiritual position. It sees you through hard times. And it knows exactly who you are. Look at the next verse, verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The gospel gives you freedom. Now, you might say, well, wait. That's what verse 1 and 2 was. Verse 1 and 2 is about changing our spiritual position. And, you know, now we're walking with God. Let me explain. I think this verse is actually telling us that the gospel gives you freedom from legalism. So we hear about God's wrath in this verse, in verse 9. How much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? Here's the thing. Wrath's got to go somewhere. So if you were to incur my wrath. Now look. I'm a nice guy, probably wouldn't happen. But if you did something real, 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 real bad and you incur the wrath of Todd, here's the thing. I got to put that wrath somewhere. So I can either lay it on you and try to make you pay for what you did. Okay, you hurt me. Now you're going to pay. I can put it on someone else. Someone, you know, in, in my life gets kind of caught in the crossfire. That wrath gets poured out on them. Or like a lot of us do, I can turn that wrath inside. I can just internalize it and be hurt and be bitter and it can eat me alive for 40 years. But that wrath has to go somewhere. God's wrath has to go somewhere. Somebody's got to pay for this. Somebody's got to pay for your sin. 
The Bible tells us that the wages of sin are death. That your sin separates you from God. You deserve death. Somebody's got to die for your sin. Somebody's got to die for mine. That wrath has to go somewhere. And if that's true, if you believe that, if you believe, oh, I deserve death, then you have to realize, man, I need rescue. I can't rescue myself. Somebody else has got to pay this death. I don't want to die. I don't want to spend an eternity apart from God. Verse 9 explains to us that we're justified, we're made right, we're safe from God's wrath, even if we don't deserve it. And then verse 10 adds this new word, reconciled. Remember I said justified is a legal term? Reconciled is a relational word. Reconciled is a, is a word, well the best way I heard an old preacher say it like this. Reconciliation involves a change in relationship from bad to good. The work of Jesus rescues us from death. Verse 10 says it also reconciles us. It puts us in good standing with God. When you know all of that, when you know that you deserve wrath, somebody's got to pay that debt. When you think about that God has rescued you and reconciled you into relationship with Him, there is no way, there is no way you can subscribe to a life of legalism. You just can't. I'll give you an example from my own life. When I was in high school, like a lot of high schoolers, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was kind of torn. I thought that I might want to be a teacher, okay? So I said, maybe I'll be a teacher. But at the same time, I really thought deep down, maybe I should go into ministry, okay? Now, if I'm being totally honest with you, I think probably that was kind of the same desire that I was scared of ministry. So I thought, well, if I'm a teacher, at least I get to stand up and talk in front of people and, and help them. And maybe, maybe I'll feel good if I teach math. Believe me, that would not have been a good idea. Because I think at that time, even as a young man, the Lord was calling me to ministry. But I didn't know. I was torn. And it's high school. Nobody knows. High schoolers, stop lying. We know you don't know what you want to do. So there was a program at my school. As I got to my, the end of my 11th grade year, the school decided to start this pilot program. And it was called Teacher Cadets. And it was going to be this new experimental program for high school seniors who thought they wanted to become teachers. And so it was going to be this uh, first period, 90-minute class, the whole year long to learn about childhood development and educational philosophy. And I was very excited about it. We were even going to do some student teaching at the end of the year. And I was pumped about teaching cadets. And then they gave us the weirdest teacher they could find. I don't know how they did it, but they found this woman who was super great, but super weird. She was an art teacher and a total hippie, okay? And so you go into this class and suddenly we're like sitting in a circle and talking about our feelings and making puppet shows and all this sort of stuff. And it was this touchy-feely sort of thing. It was weird. She was great, but she was weird. I love her, but she was weird, okay? Just, that's the truth. And so at one point kind of early in the year, she gives us this assignment. And the assignment is, I want you to go home over the weekend and I want you to write a paper. I want you to write an essay about how valuable you are. 
that you are a flower, that you're a tree, that you're a rose, you're a snowflake. This, you tell us why you're beautiful, why you deserve love, why you're worthwhile. And so everybody goes home to write these papers. And she says, and by the way, you're going to read them in class when you, when you come back on Monday. And so I went home. But the, but the thing was, is I'd also just finished reading a book called On a Hill Too Far Away by a guy named John Fisher. And John Fisher wrote a book about this thing we're talking about. John Fisher wrote a book explaining and sort of grieving how the cross and sin and wrath and crucifixion and blood and slaying a lamb and all of these things were disappearing from church culture. And he was actually right. Some of you will remember this. This was in about 1994. This was in the seeker-sensitive movement. Some of you will remember this. In the mid-90s, churches began to adopt this thing where when they have large group times like Sunday morning, they would start to kind of turn down the volume on the, on the hard stuff. That they wouldn't talk about blood or crucifixion or lambs being slain so that their service could become more attractional. It was much, much like a kind of a consumer-focused thing. Well, we don't want to offend anybody. We want to make sure that it's, it's as tasteful and as nice-looking as we can make it. And that was a real thing. Anybody remember the seeker-sensitive movement? Yeah, just a few of you. This was real, and it was happening to churches all over the place. And I'm thankful that, that that didn't grow. It didn't take over church culture like, like it looked like it was going to. And I'm thankful for a place like Bethel. We love talking about the blood of Jesus here, and I love it. But I read this book, and this book had completely rewired my brain. Because as I had read the book, what it had done was it had confronted this thing about me that I didn't even know, but I was a teenage legalist. So grew up in church, took my faith very seriously. But what this book began to highlight to me was that I thought that if I played in the youth band and if I showed up on Sunday morning and if I volunteered in the sound room and if I told everybody I did a devotional every day, even if I didn't do it, but if I acted like I did it, if I did all of these things, then I was being good. That, that, that God loved me because of these things I was doing. And being completely candid with you, Underneath that, the book also revealed that underneath that legalism was me thinking, at least a little bit, that God was kind of lucky to have me. That God loved me because kind of awesome, you know? He's lucky to have me on his team. And this book completely, completely blew that up. I mean, it just so drastically changed me. And I was going through this around the time to write this essay about what a snowflake and a rose and a flower I was. And so I go home, and I get in my bedroom, and I start writing, and I turn this thing into a sermon, y'all. I mean, the words just flowed. And I mean, I'm just typing on my typewriter or whatever, and I'm just, you know, I am nothing. I'm a sinner. I'm a wretch apart from the blood of Jesus. I've got nothing. I mean, I, you know, just flowing out of me. It was probably terrible, Okay. But I was trying to write like John Fisher because that's what I, that was what was happening to me. And I, I remember I wrote it and, and toiled over it and toiled over it all weekend. And I wrote some big impassioned closing at the end, you know. And so Monday comes around and everyone's reading. And I'm thinking, yeah, you know, just wait till Todd gets up there, okay? You know, big boy's going to hit him with it, you know. I was going to preach this sermon. 
And so it's time to read. And I mean, I go in and I sell it. I mean, I, because I believe it. And I still believe it. And I am reading and I am just, man, I just get lost in it. I'm just going and going. I'm getting louder and louder and louder. And I get to the end, whatever the end is. I am nothing. I'm a worm. I'm the worst. And it's only by the grace of Jesus that I'm set free. It's the only value I have. It's the only worth I have that he would redeem me. I mean, I just go off and I finish that thing and I look up and my class is like, Just silence. And so I looked to my teacher, the weird hippie teacher, and she's got tears in her eyes, but not the good kind. And she goes, Todd! And she runs from around her desk. She's about this tall. And she wraps me in this bear hug and won't let me go. She's crying. She's hugging me. And she says, she, she yells, sounds like somebody needs a hug. <laughs> now listen, I'm sure that paper was bad. I'm sure. I'm sure it would probably make me cringe if I read it to this day. But I can tell you this, I'm 43 years old. I can remember being 17, being hugged by this tiny little hippie teacher, her tears dripping on my shoulders, and I can remember thinking in that moment, she doesn't get it. This class doesn't get it. The thing that I just said is good news. The thing that I just read, even though written poorly, the thing that I just said is what sets you free. All of your striving, all of your ego, all of the checklist, Todd, that you think you have to do to earn your way into God's righteousness, it's worthless. It's absolutely worthless. And when I realized that, it felt like a weight was off my shoulders. I felt free. And suddenly, serving and going to church and reading the Bible and loving people and, and, and being faithful, suddenly all of that came from a place of gratitude. It came from an absolute place of, of thankfulness and, and gratitude to the Lord. The gospel changes your spiritual position. The gospel sees you through hard times. The gospel knows exactly who you are. And the gospel gives you freedom from legalism. And I want to tell you this. You will not hear this very much in Christian culture. If somebody sends me another Instagram post about how I'm loved and flawless and perfect and a masterpiece, I'm going to lose it. Because here's the thing. When I listen to Christian radio, when I listen to Christian podcasts, when I read Christian books, when I look at Christian moms on Facebook, here's the thing that's missing. When I see that, oh, you're flawless, you're perfect, don't let anybody tell you. The thing that's missing is Jesus. I need songs and books and Instagram posts to remind me he's the one who's flawless. He's the masterpiece. It's, it's all through him and by him. It's all his doing. And I don't want for a second to even entertain the notion that somehow God's lucky to have me. I'm the one who's been blessed. I am blessed that he has given me his grace. And listen, I know that around here we're not like a shouting 
clapping church. I get it. I get it. We don't get real wild. Frankly, I wish we did get a little wild every now and then. Let me tell you something. If you're a follower of Jesus, when you read Romans 5, 9 through 11, something in your heart ought to go, yes. Something about that ought to set you free. It ought to transform how you open your Bible the next time, the next time you work as a greeter at church, the next time you reach out to a neighbor, that you would remember, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The gospel set me free from legalism. If you are not a follower of Christ, here's what I'll say. We're almost done. If you are not a follower of Christ, I, I beg you, I beg you to place your faith in Jesus. I don't know much, but I am saying this stuff because I believe it, because I've seen it born out in my life. And so if you're not a Christ follower, I pray that today you would do that. You know, we talk all the time about this area called starting point out in the hall, and that's real. That if you have questions about this or you feel like, man, I, I want to place my faith in Jesus, I don't even know how. There are people out there who can absolutely help you do that. If you are lost, I want to tell you that the gospel will give you hope, and some of you are in real bad need of hope. And Romans 5 says it's a hope that will not put you to shame. It will make you a veteran. You will be able to see God's faithfulness time and time again. If you are a Christian, my encouragement to you would be to remember. To as you leave this place today, that you would remember God's faithfulness. You would remember all of the benefits of the gospel. And that that would motivate your joy. It would motivate your thanks and praise to God. And if you're a Christian... Maybe you're in, a, in struggle right now. Maybe you're in a bit of suffering. Maybe you would say today, Todd, I don't feel like a veteran. I feel like a victim. I don't, I don't, I, I'm in the middle of something. I'm going to tell you that you've got people around you that I think you could look at today and say, will you help me remember? If you're a Christian, you've probably got somebody in your family, somebody in your Sunday school, somebody in your life group, your spouse that you could look at and say, I am struggling. Will you remind me of God's faithfulness? Will you just list off some of the stuff God's done? Some of you need to do that in your life group the next time you meet. Maybe good for you in your Sunday school. Next time you meet to go, you know what? We're going to call an audible. We're going to go around the room and we're going to remember. We're just going to remember what God's done. We're going to remember that we have not been put to shame. I'm going to have Drew and Heather come up and we're going to sing a little before we're done this morning, but, and I'll pray in a second, but I just want to encourage you and remind you to hold fast to this. Hold fast to Romans 5, 1 through 11. The gospel changes your spiritual position. It sees you through hard times. It knows exactly who you are, and the gospel gives you freedom. Let's pray together. God, thank you for this day and for your word, and we thank you for the gospel, for the work of Jesus. As Drew prayed. It's your plan. It's your initiative. You are the one who made a way for us to be reconciled to you, and we thank you for that. And God, would you help us to remember that it's all Jesus. It's all his work. It's his blood. He's the one. He's the one worthy of all the adulation and all the praise and all the celebration. And God, would you help us to live lives that are built on that foundation of the gospel, that we can count on you, that we can rely on you. And God, I pray for those who are suffering today. Would you remind them today that you are a God who is at work. You are a God who's strong. You're a God who's faithful. And you will not put them to shame.
We pray all of this in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit.